0: Does it make a difference if your baby is delivered by a family physician or by an obstetrician? Who is safer? New treatments for hepatitis C are expensive. Are these costs offset through prevention of late-stage complications? Falls in older people in long-term care settings are common. Can they be prevented, or should they simply be expected as a part of growing older? Welcome to CMAJ Podcasts. I'm Dr. Diane Kelso, Deputy Editor, and today I'm talking about the October 20th, 2015 issue of the Canadian Medical Association Journal. In this issue, we look at some hot topics the federal election in Canada, suicides among teens in Canada's north, medical and non medical exemptions for vaccinations, researcher fraud. But let's start with the research studies in this issue. The first study is a population-based cohort study comparing outcomes of deliveries by family physicians or obstetricians Canada-wide, excluding Quebec. The researchers found a similar risk of perinatal mortality and adverse maternal outcomes among both providers. Dr. Matthew Stanbrook, CMAJ Deputy Editor, interviews Dr. Chris Aubrey-Basler, Associate Professor in the Primary Health Care Research Unit at Memorial University and lead author of this study.
1: Dr. Aubrey Bassler, welcome. Thank you. This is a study about who delivers babies. So let's start off with who is delivering babies in Canada right now. How does it break down?
2: My study looked at uh, 06 to 09 data. 73% obstetricians, midwives, about 4%. uh, And that leaves 23 or so percent by uh, family docs. Now there were a handful, a small handful, I think less than 1%. that were coded as delivered by other providers in our data set. So you know, they might have been coded by uh, an eMERGE doc if there was an urgent delivery. We excluded those from the data set because we assumed that those were uh, urgent deliveries for whatever the reason might be.
1: And how much variation is there across the country in who delivers uh, your baby? And and what does that depend on? Does it depend on where you live? Uh, does patient choice play a big role? Are there other factors?
2: The biggest one probably is, is where you live. So... Uh, Rurally, there's a much higher percentage of family doctors that are doing the deliveries than there are in urban centers. But even amongst the urban centers, there's a huge amount of variation in the proportion of deliveries by family docs. I didn't look at the urban centers independently, but what uh, we did look at in our paper is uh, we divided the data up into quintiles based on the proportion of deliveries by family docs and across the quintiles it ranged from about 4% in the lowest quintile right up to uh, close to 65% of deliveries by family docs uh, in the highest quintile. Uh, Those quintiles were divided at the home hospital level so if a woman Uh, It was the catchment area of the hospital that she lived in, and we calculated the proportion of deliveries by family docs for the women living within that catchment area of the hospital and there are reasons for that. Uh, it's, it might seem a little bit unusual to do it that way uh, rather than doing it by the delivery hospital.
1: So there is a fair bit of variation that sets the stage for your research and yet it's also been recognized that over the decades there's been a shift towards more deliveries being done by obstetricians rather than family physicians. Tell us why that is.
2: I think in general in medicine there's a shift towards uh, lifestyle being a more important deciding factor in uh, in making decisions about career, uh, about specialization and, and whatnot. And I think you'll agree that obstetrics is probably on the end with a, a relatively poor lifestyle in, in terms of uh, on-call requirements and up in the middle of the night for deliveries and that sort of thing. I think people for whom lifestyle is an important choice in their career decision-making, I think it's fair to say they're selectively choosing family medicine over other. I mean, it's not a—not by any means a the only determinant there in uh, career decision-making, but uh, I think there's a, a bit of a selection there towards family medicine. So uh, because lifestyle is a concern, they're less likely to do obstetrics in their practice. And so uh, the default then becomes the obstetricians uh, uh, to do the deliveries. That'll be one reason. I think there's also concerns around uh, malpractice. Malpractice insurance rates are very high in obstetrics. I think there's less tolerance and risk in the last decade or so relative to prior decades. And so... uh, a fear of risk probably pushes people away from doing obstetrics, especially non, uh, non-specialists non and non-experts.
1: So you're, you're saying that the main determinant of these trends has been at the provider level then. It's that fewer and fewer family physicians are being willing to do deliveries and, and that forces the, the trends to go that way rather than it being people deliberately choosing to be delivered by one or the other type of practitioner. Is that correct? <laughs>
2: I think that's probably the main determinant. That's my opinion. I suspect, though, that there's also patient-level determinants as well. I think there's an increasing push towards specialization by patients. Uh, It certainly doesn't apply to everybody. But uh, I think there's an increasing interest by patients to be seen by specialists, uh, thinking that outcomes will be better by specialists. And so there's probably a push at the patient level as well.
1: And what about midwives? You mentioned before that there are just a small proportion of deliveries, but how do they fit into these trends?
2: I believe the data shows that there's an increasing proportion of deliveries by midwives as well. And so uh, after I just finished telling you that there's uh, an an increased push towards specialization, I believe there's also a subset of the population that is uh, pushing to have a more Patient-centered delivery process, and call it a specialization in a different way than what obstetrics, what obstetricians typically specialize in, how they typically practice. Uh, I think midwives offer uh, a, um, an approach to delivery that uh, is different than, significantly different than what most uh, physicians are taught in medical school. Practice in different ways, and that strongly appeals to a subset of the population. So that many of the women who would have chosen a family physician in decades past when midwives weren't as available are choosing midwives now to get that uh, family and patient-centered care that they don't feel they can get from medical providers.
1: Now, let me play devil's advocate for a moment. I assume it's fair to conclude that just about anyone delivering babies regularly in Canada, regardless of their specialty, has been well-trained. They've been certified to be competent to do that. So then why would anyone think that there would be a difference in pregnancy outcomes between delivers mm-hmm. by family physicians compared to obstetricians? And if there are concerns about this, who has those concerns mostly?
2: Well, first of all, I would agree with you that uh, I think the training by and large in Canada is is excellent for obstetrical providers and that it is fair to assume that outcomes would be good across the board. But there is also uh, some literature that suggests in certain areas, the more specialized a provider is, that outcomes are are better. And so I think there's a tendency to to generalize those findings into other findings. And so the assumption is that in low-risk pregnancy and low-risk obstetrical delivery, that, uh, that outcomes may be better with specialists, with obstetricians, rather than family physicians. There are a small handful of family physicians who do very high-volume obstetrics, but by and large, most family physicians do. It's part of their practice. They do other things as part of their practice as well. And with increased volume, there there's the assumption that higher volume results in more familiarity with managing problems and therefore better outcomes. So I think there is the thought at the provider level that increased specialization results in better outcomes. There are also policy-level decisions that seem to suggest that an assumption is being made that obstetricians have better outcomes as well. So now there are lots of different reasons for these policy decisions. Uh, I'm not saying that this is the only reason, but uh, increasingly obstetrical deliveries are being uh, centralized at larger hospitals, larger volume centers. Uh, And there is some scientific literature to suggest that not the provider, but that outcomes are better at some higher volume hospitals as well. Higher volume hospitals is typically where obstetricians practice. So if you want to make the assumption that one of the reasons for those outcomes being better at the higher volume hospitals is that obstetricians practice there, then that might be part of the process that goes into to those decisions as
1: well. And are there also concerns in the other direction that obstetricians may be doing interventions during delivery that may not be necessary, especially for low-risk pregnancies?
2: Absolutely, and that's, you'll see that uh, raised through the literature uh, in, in different papers, and also through the, uh, some of the lay press and, and websites and opinion pieces online, for example, that it's a common opinion that obstetricians are more likely to intervene, so more likely to use vacuum to assist delivery, forceps to assist delivery, and to use cesarean section. When when the indications for those are not perfectly clear, there's a bit of a subjective decision-making process that goes into using those interventions and deliveries. But our data didn't actually show that, and that's not universal across different papers. Some of the papers that have examined that don't actually show that relationship. They show fairly consistently, that midwives have a lower, call it a procedural delivery rate that includes all those uh, different types of delivery I talked about, but that the analyses that look at family physicians versus obstetricians vary. Some show that association, some don't show that association.
1: Now let's talk about how you did your new study that you're publishing in CMAJ. This is an observational study. Where did you get the data for it?
2: So data came from the uh, Canadian Institute for Health Information, CHIHI, that collects all discharge data. So all hospital discharge data across the country uh, except for Quebec. There's a different uh, data collection process in Quebec. Uh, It was just a little bit out of our uh, capability to do that.
1: Now, one issue in, in trying to study this question is that there are always going to be pregnancies that would seem to mandate the involvement of an obstetrician, aren't there? I mean, there are uh, pregnancies that are recognized up front to be high risk, pregnancies that develop problems late in gestation, urgent things that happen during, uh, during labor that need an emergency C-section, for example. These are inevitable. So how did you handle those circumstances in your analysis?
2: Various ways. I mean, this is, a, this is an issue that comes up with any observational study, and so there are lots of different approaches to, uh, to handle that. The traditional approach is to use a multivariate uh, regression analysis and to control for those risk factors that might result in adverse outcome or the designation of a woman and or her fetus as high-risk antenatally, uh, and we control for those. So those are incorporated as covariates in the multivariate regression to adjust for the impact that they have on adverse outcome. The other thing that we did is to control for the women who intended to be delivered by a family physician or a midwife, but then needed an obstetrician intervention, regardless of what the reason was. The patients for whom a family physician or a midwife was coded at any point in the chart as being the most responsible physician, those patients were assigned to the family physician group because typically those the, the patients that then required referral to an obstetrician are those that underwent a complication of some sort that required uh, more specialized intervention uh, and so it wouldn't be fair to assign those just based on who the delivery provider was uh, because they would tend to be uh, they would tend to have a higher uh, higher risk profile. So those patients, as I mentioned before, those patients were assigned to the the family physician group. We think that we got a reasonable division between the family physician obstetrics group of those patients that were intended to be delivered by family physicians, but then were actually delivered by an obstetrician.
1: Now your study used a special method called an instrumental variable. Many of our readers and listeners may not be familiar with this. Perhaps you can explain without getting too technical, in general terms, how using this analysis allows your study to be perhaps better than previous studies that have tried to answer this question.
2: The unobserved confounders in my data, so the confounding factors that will impact on outcomes but were not recorded in the data set, would be something, the example that I gave in the paper I think is uh, gestational diabetes. Uh, In most jurisdictions, most hospitals, uh, a woman with mild gestational diabetes would be eligible to to be delivered either by a family physician or by uh, an obstetrician, whereas women with severe gestational diabetes would almost universally, uh, we weren't really designed to look at this, but um, I can tell you just from practice experience that pretty much in any jurisdiction they'd be referred to be delivered by an obstetrician. But what effectively that means for my analysis, because the severity of the gestational diabetes is not recorded in the, uh, the data set, is that um, effectively the woman with mild gestational diabetes by, delivered by a family physician would be considered equivalent to the woman with severe gestational diabetes being uh, uh, delivered by an obstetrician. And of course, we all know that the severity of the gestational diabetes is also a risk factor for uh, adverse maternal and neonatal outcome. What uh, this instrumental variable approach allows is to adjust for those unrecorded variables, those unobserved variables in the data set. There have been studies that look at uh, reanalyzing data from previous studies and comparing the results of instrumental variable analyses of observational data, and they have very, very similar results to those obtained from randomized control trials. So, That would suggest of course it doesn't prove but that would suggest that uh, it is um, better
1: so you use this special instrumental variable technique and at the end of the day this allows you to compare family doctor deliveries to obstetrician deliveries now what's left out of that of course is midwives you excluded midwives from your study why did you do that
2: to be honest the first time we analyzed the data we did include midwives and we ended up with essentially identical results to what we we got when we excluded the midwives. One of our co-authors, when I sent around the um, uh, when I sent around the paper for for discussion, and we were discussing the analytical approach, suggested that the comparison wasn't very clean if we included midwives because of the reasons that we talked about earlier here. Uh, the thinking that uh, there's a different approach to deliveries by midwives, and that uh, I think it's uh, they're considered in obstetrical circles to be non-specialists in obstetrical delivery, uh, and so for the reasons we mentioned before, they might be thought to have uh, worse outcomes than than other providers. So we worried then that the criticism of, of our paper would be that uh, if we compared family docs to both obstetricians and midwives together, that the midwife outcomes would be. Sort of pulling the, the obstetrician outcomes down a little bit to uh, to the level of family physicians, if you if you want to think of it that way. Uh, that was not the case, I can tell you. Um, as I said before, the outcomes were our analyses were essentially this, uh, the same as what we found here now. But um, we were that would be criticized if if we did that that way. So that's why we did it. Now. Um, uh, we, we would also have liked to analyze midwives separately, either compared to fan musicians or to obstetricians in a similar fashion using the instrumental variable technique. But one of the, the criteria that's necessary for the instrumental variable approach is uh, a wide range across your data set, a wide range in your instrumental variable in order to attain a, a suitably powered study. And I uh, can't remember the exact numbers, but the proportion of deliveries by midwives across the country only range from a, about zero to 10 or so percent, I think. So uh, quite a a narrow range and insufficient to provide us with sufficient power to, to do similar analyses, unfortunately. So we'd need a much, much bigger data set to look at midwife deliveries in a similar way.
1: Fair enough. Now let's come to your results. So this is family physician deliveries versus obstetrician deliveries. Your main question was, do these specialists differ for perinatal mortality or for maternal mortality and morbidity? So Correct. what did you find? Yeah
2: we found that there was no difference between uh, so we had both of those outcomes we analyzed those outcomes separately in separate regression equations we uh, previous studies uh, have tended to to focus on perinatal mortality although there are a small number that look at maternal uh, the maternal outcome uh, we wanted to look at both and uh found no difference in the uh, the outcomes between specialists and uh family positions when using the uh, instrumental variable approach the um, relative risk for uh perinatal mort- mortality was 0.97 and the confidence interval overlapped 1 by a, a, a significant margin the relative risk of maternal morbidity was 1.13 and again the confidence interval overlapped 1 uh, significantly so uh Uh, non-significant differences between the outcomes uh, between those two groups.
1: So given these results, what is your advice now for physicians who are either delivering babies themselves or referring their pregnant patients, and for those patients themselves who have a choice of providers?
2: So because of what I mentioned before with the instrumental variable techniques, what the econometricians talk about is that uh, IV-adjusted analyses, instrumental variable, they apply to policy type questions, uh, they can't be applied to the individual patient level. So I just wanted to to mention that caveat. I think, of course, we are going to be uh, making decisions typically at the patient level. And so insofar as a patient is similar to other patients across the country who would be eligible for delivery either by family physicians or by obstetricians, then it's reasonable. You'll get Very similar outcomes, regardless of who delivers the baby.
1: Well, these are some valuable uh, new data. Uh, Thank you for taking us through them and helping explain them to us.
2: Thanks very much for the opportunity.
1: The second study in the October 20th issue
0: investigates whether heart rate and heart rate variability are associated with functional status in adults independent of cardiovascular disease. Data were extracted from the PROSPER study, which stands for a prospective study of pravastatin in the elderly at risk. 5,042 participants were included in the study, and mean follow-up was over three years. Ogliari and colleagues found that higher heart rate and lower heart rate variability were associated with worse functional status and higher risk of future decline among older adults after adjusting for most drugs and comorbidities. Why are these measures so important? A consistently higher heart rate may damage the vascular endothelium through shear stress and make the heart muscle work harder. Heart rate variability helps with efficient alveolar gas exchange and control of blood pressure. The issue also includes highlights from two CMAJ Open research papers. The first looks at medical and non-medical exemptions to vaccinations in Ontario over a decade. The authors found that for both 7 and 17-year-olds, medical exemptions are declining, but non-medical exemptions have significantly increased. There was significant geographic variability in non-medical exemption rates, suggesting that there is a role for targeted interventions to address vaccine hesitancy. The second CMAJ open paper looks at who receives long-term opioid therapy for non-cancer pain. In a survey of patients presenting to a tertiary care pain management center, over two-thirds were on disability benefits and nearly half had troublesome adverse effects. Surprisingly, many patients were unclear about what opioids they were prescribed, suggesting a role for improved patient education. Now... We know that older adults living in long-term care facilities have a higher rate of fracture, but is this inevitable? I interviewed Dr. Papa Ioannou, Professor of Medicine at McMaster University in the Division of Geriatric Medicine and a Geriatric Medicine Specialist at Hamilton Health Sciences, about a new guideline from the Scientific Advisory Council of Osteoporosis Canada. This guideline focuses on preventing fracture in this vulnerable group welcome, Alexandra. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. Osteoporosis Canada has published other guidelines on osteoporosis and prevention of fracture. Why were guidelines specifically for adults in long-term care required?
3: The guidelines for long-term care were identified uh, that this population, that there is a gap that we hand addressed. The frail older adults in long-term care have Multiple comorbidities, may have a different lifespan than the older adults in the community, and have some unique health issues that they face. And Osteoporosis Canada wanted to address these vulnerable older adults who are often, their issues are not addressed in guidelines.
0: Now tell us how these guidelines were put together.
3: So these guidelines were developed by the Scientific Advisory Council of osteoporosis Canada, and that includes multiple different health professionals from across Canada, as well as grade methodologists from McMaster University who advised us on the grade process and did the grading of the evidence and reviewed the quality of that evidence. The grade system looks at quality of the evidence, the balances of benefits, harms, values, and preferences, and resources to grade the strength of recommendations. What's unique about these guidelines is the guideline panel included authors, health care providers, researchers, and what was really unique was the representatives from the residents, themselves from long-term care, and family councils. And their values and preferences and what was important to them was included in the recommendations.
0: So how many residents were involved in the, in the development of these guidelines then? So
3: there were several
0: residents and the Family
3: Health Council of Ontario were involved um, in the process. And again, as we went through the process, we involved a number of family members, who represented the residents and their beliefs and values.
0: Before we go into the recommendations, so it sounds like these guidelines are particular to residents in long-term care rather than all older adults. So
3: these guidelines are developed for residents in long-term care. Having said that, there are frail older adults who have similar multiple medical issues and functional needs that may require nursing assistance who live in retirement homes or live in their own home who may be very similar.
0: Okay, so there is a possibility for clinicians then to apply these recommendations to to those special groups? For sure. You recommend dividing residents of long-term care facilities into those at high risk and those at not high risk because that's sort of how your recommendations are divided. How should clinicians make this division?
3: So what's unique about these recommendations is typically one of the risk factor ways we assess risk for osteoporosis is we use a test called bone mineral density. In the long-term care setting, we've, reviewing the evidence, made recommendations that individuals at high risk are those who have experienced prior fractures as well as or having had being on recent steroids with a prior fracture. And what we mean by prior fractures are fractures like a hip, vertebral fracture, pelvis, or to a more, peripheral fracture.
0: So we're not talking about a fracture that somebody had as a child. We're talking about a fracture that happened later in life?
3: Right. So after the age of 50, these are the fractures that are most relevant. And particularly in long-term care, 30% of uh, individuals have had a vertebral fracture. And there's also, um, in terms of prevalence, at least approximately 10% to up to a third have had a prior hip fractures. Those are the individuals at high risk or if they've been previously diagnosed with osteoporosis.
0: Okay, so let's begin with your the recommendations for calcium and vitamin D. So should all residents in long-term care facilities take supplements?
3: So what we've recommended is those at high risk, we've recommended for calcium that dietary sources be reviewed. And we know many of the um, nutritionists and dietitians in long-term care are quite keen to review the diet in long-term care to ensure that seniors are meeting the RDA, which is recommended 1,200 milligrams a day. For those over 70, which is approximately, to translate that, three servings of dairy or dairy equivalents. For those who can't take that amount, the amount of supplement for calcium we're recommending is only 500 milligrams a day, which is a change compared to our previous guidelines.
0: So, and the change is in this is a, a lower amount then?
3: A lower amount in trying to obtain more from dietary sources. So we're strongly encouraging the dietitians and nutritionists to review the overall menu plan for the individual resident at high risk. For those who are at high risk as well, we're recommending 800 to 2,000 international units of vitamin D3.
0: How do people make a decision between the low end or the high end? Because that's a fairly large range.
3: The reason that we've made the range, Osteoporosis Canada has made this recommendation is most residents, um, in terms of fracture and falls benefit, a thousand is adequate per day. However, many seniors initially are vitamin D deplete, and that's why we went up to 2,000 a day.:
0: Certainly, there's been some studies that' shown that it's difficult for certain Canadians anywhere in Canada at any time of the year to get enough vitamin D through exposure to sunlight. So it sounds like supplements are a good idea.
3: Certainly in those groups that are, especially as you age, it's harder to convert that active form to the active form of D3.
0: Tell us then, let's move on to pharmacologic therapy. What kind of recommendations are made in that area? In
3: individuals who are living longer, whose lifespan is predicted to be greater than a year, because that's when the benefits in terms of fracture reduction of the medications starts being of benefit, we've placed a high value on those benefits, balancing it with the harms at one year. So what we recommended because of uh, first-line therapy and and some of the recommendations are, not all the recommendations, we looked at the cost and the benefits, is we've recommended oral bisphosphonates, alendronate, and res- residrinate are recommended, but not for individuals who have severe renal insufficiency. So for those with creatinine clearances less than 30 ml per minute, we should avoid these medications.
0: What about for residents who have difficulty swallowing? So for those
3: individuals who have difficulty swallowing or taking oral medications, for instance, some individuals with dementia will pocket their medications in their mouth, and not swallow, this may increase the risk. We recommended either zoledronic acid, which is an intravenous medication, that's once yearly, or denosumab, which is twice a year as first-line therapies.
0: So in that circumstance, presumably, would the residents have to go to a clinic at a hospital or something to get that, or could that be delivered in the long-term care facility?
3: One of the values that was very important to the residents and the families is that they remain in their own home, which is a long-term care setting, and both these options can be delivered in the long-term care setting.
0: Now, you addressed some other recommendations, talk about exercise, hip protectors, you mentioned uh, falls protocol. Can you tell us a little bit about those?
3: We've talked about uh, very important in in seniors, um, particularly in long-term care, to address multi-factorial interventions, so particularly those who are at high risk, looking at reviewing medications, environmental hazards, as well as looking at issues such as urinary incontinence. As well for exercise, we've recommended that the exercise that is very important is balance and resistance training. We know that individuals at high risk for fractures that you need to use both the exercise and the multifactorial interventions to reduce their risk. In addition, in some individuals who are willing to wear them, hip protectors may be of value. Some are, um, for those who haven't seen them, some are like biking shorts and they can have a soft or hard shell. And there's a variety of options that are available that can be provided for a resident. However, residents need to be able to wear them, both sometimes day and night, especially if they're up at night to go to the bathroom. Um, So they have to be willing to wear them.
0: Now, as you develop these recommendations, did your group identify any important gaps in the literature, areas where research really needs to be done?
3: Really important gap is much of the research for all medications is done in very healthy community-dwelling seniors. And so in the future, we need to consider in these frail older adults how research can be done in this setting that includes individuals with multiple medical issues, multiple medications, who have different risks for falls and fractures. The other um, gap is looking at future fracture risk assessments That includes tools that are already used by long-term care, such as MDS-RI.
0: Well, thank you very much, Alexandra. And thank you for having us. The October 20th issue has a special focus on treating chronic hepatitis C infection. In the practice section, Drs. Fralick and Feld outline five things to know about this important issue. They remind us that most infected patients will develop chronic infection, that it is often asymptomatic, and that it is curable. The current threshold for starting treatment depends on the extent of liver fibrosis. Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor, interviews Dr. Mark Tyndall, Professor in the University of British Columbia Department of Medicine and Director of the Centre for Disease Control at UBC on this topic. He has published a commentary outlining some advocacy efforts that may be misplaced when it comes to hepatitis C treatment. Hello, Mark.
4: Hi, Kirsten.
5: Where are you joining us from today?
4: I'm actually attending the International AIDS Conference in Vancouver. I have a beautiful view of the mountains.
5: Well, thanks for taking the time to speak to us today. Could you talk us through the recent changes in the landscape of drug therapy for hepatitis C?
4: So there's been a real dramatic shift, I'd say, in the past 18 months. I've been working with drug-using populations since the late 1990s, and hepatitis C prevalence by that time was already... 60% in Vancouver, and there was explosive outbreaks of hepatitis C among drug users starting about 25 years ago. And treatment interferon-based treatment, which was injectable um, weekly injections, plus pills for usually a year, was the only treatment we had to offer for probably 15 years. So I was involved in setting up some early hepatitis C treatment programs in Vancouver But it was very difficult to uh, get people through the treatment, and as a result, very few people actually accessed it. And starting um, about two years ago, we began to see clinical trials that showed much improved outcomes with uh, oral therapies. And within the last year, they've been released in the U.S. and more recently in Canada. So now we have shorter course oral therapy that's highly effective so that um, we're talking in the range of ninety to ninety five percent of people who complete therapy eradicate their hepatitis C
5: and I understand there are fewer adverse effects with the oral treatment.
4: they seem to be very well tolerated, so it's uh, it's a huge improvement over both the pills and the injectable interferon that uh, people had to take. Now I, I was involved in a n- number of courses of treatment and with the right supports people could get through the interferon treatment and there was a wide spectrum of how people uh, reacted to toxicities from some people didn't notice anything till you know and the other extreme within a week people had to quit treatment because they felt so terrible so there was a generally it was uh, poorly tolerated but Most people who started it with the right supports did get through it.
5: So improved treatment with fewer side effects seems like a really good thing, but it's expensive and you have some grave concerns. What are they?
4: The fact being that hepatitis C has been with us in this population for so long and that very few people were even offered treatment, and all of a sudden we have improved treatment and it would make sense. Well, why don't we just then get everybody treated. And there's been a real push now to uh, set up clinics and get physicians on side and to really line up people to get treated. And uh, the cost of the treatment is so exorbitant that I'm really concerned that putting all our eggs in a, in a treatment basket will, is just really the wrong way to go at this time. Because really what's killing people and causing people to suffer and their life expectancy to be so short has nothing really to do with hepatitis C.
5: We're talking about in this particular group of those who are newly infected, which is largely driven by IV drug use.
4: Yes, there's a lot of studies going on in Canada to try to determine the uh, the risk groups. And there seems to be a proportion of people who, uh, you know, have been infected in the distant past without any acknowledged exposure to needles or injection drug use. But we, we figure the vast majority of people who weren't infected through the transfusion system, which was a problem in the, through the 70s and 80s, have contracted HCV through needle use. And when you say recent use, many of these people that I see in the clinic currently uh, probably were infected with hepatitis C 20 or more years ago. So there's still new infections happening, but um, there's a lot of people in Canada who have a history of drug use who have been carrying this virus for two or three decades.
5: And I think you made the point that these people don't always die of hep C. They die of other problems, socioeconomic issues that we could be addressing too.
4: The natural history of hepatitis C. Um, we're still learning things, but we know that it's very slowly progressive infection. And in in the absence of other cofactors such as uh, concurrent HIV, alcohol use, obesity, for most people, the infection is relatively benign. And when you're dealing with a population that has so many competing factors uh, for death. And already a very shortened life expectancy, they will not really run into any tr- any trouble with their hepatitis.
5: In your commentary, you mentioned two particular groups that you're concerned about: those who are homeless and prison inmates. And you say that they are being overlooked when it comes to HCV infection. Tell us why you want to draw attention to these groups in particular.
4: Well, we know how the virus is transmitted, and uh, we know that. Uh, people with mental illness, homelessness, prison populations are disproportionately impacted by hepatitis C. And the focus in that group, if we're going to advocate for better health, it really shouldn't be focused on treating a medical condition that's likely not to have any impact on on their health. My biggest concern, if we turn all our attention to try to medicalize what really is addiction, poverty, homelessness, mental illness into somehow a, a virus that we can cure. We're, we're kind of missing the the big public health implications of hepatitis C. And the other group, the uh, prison population, who seem to be an obvious target for treatment, is you have quite a, um, quite a fixed audience, but The fact is that we're not doing anything to prevent hepatitis C infection in prisons. So we have no harm reduction allowed in prisons and that people, even if they're treated in prison successfully, um, are most often thrown back into the same environment that they got infected with in the first place. And uh, the likelihood of reinfection, I think, is is quite high.
5: It's interesting that you say that because I think we don't have good data on reinfection rates or possibility for reinfection once successful treatment has been completed?
4: Yeah, the clinical trials that show the the success of the treatment follow people up for about 12 months. And so there's no, none of the trials that I've seen presented even have any plans to follow people up. There's some observational studies that have been presented the one that sticks out is from the UK, where the reinfection rate was 25% after about two years, and we're still, you know, following people. But one thing we know about hepatitis C in drug-using populations is it can be very rapidly transmitted. So there's a lot of uh, epidemiologic research looking at injection drug using communities who uh, went from essentially zero hepatitis C to 60 or 70% in a, a year or two. So it, if, they, if you eradicated hepatitis C from Vancouver tomorrow and just left things as they be, they, it would come back within a few years to quite high rates because it's so easily transmitted if we don't have very tight harm reduction and other programs for people who have addiction and mental health issues.
5: Looking at the high cost of hepatitis C drug treatment, how much does it cost, and might this money be spent elsewhere more usefully?
4: I think that's the main point that I wanted to make. The drugs, when they were first introduced, came out at $1,000 a pill. And this was a the first direct-acting antiviral that was also combined with interferon. And there was quite an outcry of that at that time that that was uh, exorbitant price to pay for a pill, and so a course of treatment would be about eighty-five thousand dollars U.S. And then the oral, the combination pill that included two new oral agents would be uh, about ninety-five thousand dollars for a twelve-week course of treatment. So there was immediate backlash that that seemed to be a lot of money, but that really has not uh, has not sustained, and the advocacy really is not so much to lower the price of these drugs but rather to gain access and so it's true in Canada that there will be uh, negotiations and there's active negotiations going on now to bring that price down but I think they'll land at somewhere between fifty and sixty thousand dollars a treatment there is some hope that because there's probably going to be Five or six different pharmaceutical companies involved in competing for these these drugs, which are really copycat drugs that other companies have picked up. So their act their action of antiviral activity is very similar. They will compete with each other, but we know from everything else in uh, medicine that it'll compete to a certain point. But there'll be a price point that the comp- none of the companies will go below. So um, I would imagine that we're looking at. Forty dollars to $50,000 a treatment course at best. And if you put that into terms of what we could do with harm reduction and poverty eradication and treating mental illness and homelessness, we, we could do an awful lot with that money that would, I think, really make a difference in people's outlook and their health. And focusing on using our limited resources to just eradicate a virus that for most people won't cause them any clinical harm is, I think, mis- misguided. We're very limited in Canada with our harm reduction interventions, and these programs that uh, we know work are under extreme pressure from resources. And so supervised injection sites would be one example where one of the big criticisms by the government is, well, why we can't afford to do something like that. But it's a, it's such a drop in the bucket if at the at the one hand they're saying that, and the other hand they're saying, oh, yeah, but we'll spend, you know, billions of our pharmacare money on drug treatment so uh, with that money if we could even get a a small portion of that could revolutionize the way that we uh, are able to intervene with with people that are are using drugs
5: it's really stark when you put it in those terms thanks mark for speaking with us today
4: thank you very much
5: The practice section in the October 20th issue
0: also looks at investigating diarrhea in chronic HIV infection, the association of bilateral corneal edema with amantadine use, and a stunning image of Raynaud phenomenon of the tongue. The analysis article in this issue looks at the difficult task researchers face when reaching marginalized populations to address these severe health inequities they experience. Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor, interviews Dr. Anne Jolly, Associate Professor in the School of Epidemiology, Public Health, and Preventive Medicine at the University of Ottawa. Dr. Jolly co-authored a paper on the topic of health research involving hard-to-reach populations.
5: Hello, Anne. Hello, how are you? I'm great. Thank you for joining us. There are some populations and groups who, for various reasons, get missed in health research. And yet these marginalized groups are often those that face severe health challenges compared to the rest of the population and in which good research is really needed. And give yeah. us some examples of the populations that we're talking about here. We started off actually looking
6: at people with sexually transmitted infections in Manitoba and whether these people are really poor or whether they're quite wealthy. It's a sensitive topic and nobody really wants to discuss it, especially not when it's them or their sex partners. Um, so it's usually populations in which there's some sort of heavy social taboo or some sort of s- social sensitivity. It's a more overt. So, for example, uh, injection drug users, as you may expect, because they're marginalized, people do judge them. And also, of course, the activity that they're doing is illegal. We see also the sort of same same kind of hidden population or marginalized people uh, for, for sex workers a lot of street people, um, people addicted to alcohol and with other issues, mental health issues on the street. Um, and recently we started working with uh, some very marginalized folks in Cali, Colombia, who are African Colombian and transsexual. So these are the kind of people who are very vulnerable to infectious disease, but uh, unfortunately, you know, it's, it's really difficult to do good research in these groups.
5: Why is research involving these groups so particularly challenging?
6: Well, for one thing, many of them have had very negative experiences with healthcare systems and even with healthcare professionals. So they tend to stay away from hospitals, from mainstream medical clinics. People don't want to be judged. And also they tend to receive a lot less sort of sympathetic care. So there's a lot less understanding about how the uh, mental illness or the drug addiction or the street life impacts on their health. So generally it's because of the sort of society's judgment against them
5: so these people often have difficulty engaging with health researchers and what happens if we don't make an effort as researchers to reach marginalized populations
6: Well, one of the major things, and I think that is really becoming quite clear, is, for example, people with tuberculosis living in the inner city. Many of them may be uh, on the street drug addicted. They may not be eating properly. They don't have a stable lifestyle where they know they have a home to go to. And all of this kind of moving around stress, as well as the crowded conditions in some of the shelters, the harsh temperatures we have here, everything, it makes these people really susceptible to transmitting and and getting sick with tuberculosis the infection tends to wear on them much worse so Everything is sort of much faster, much more severe. Uh, The social issues in follow-up and care and treatment, much more complicated. There are issues of, yes, infectious disease can be transmitted everywhere. So things like the flu also can be very harsh with uh, these folks in the shelters and various other places they live. And uh, it, it does actually have an impact on the rest of society in terms of the burden of illness, the cost of the illness, and direct transmission to people who are less at risk.
5: In your analysis article, you suggest a particular approach for conducting research in marginalized populations. Could you take us through the method and explain how this works?
6: This is a new method and and it was sort of pioneered along the social network lines An earlier version of this was snowball sampling where you basically try to find people who are well known within the marginalized group or the vulnerable group of people and ask them to bring their friends but as you can imagine, you know you may be sort of quite overwhelmed with the number of friends that they have or the number of friends that their friends have. Respondent driven sampling was developed by, well, the idea first came to Doug, a hackathon out of the United States in regards to injection drug users and the HIV issue. So HIV being spread from um, used contaminated needles or other drug equipment. So he actually refined this technique of snowball sampling, whereby he asked people to come in to bring their friends, but restricted the number of friends to bring in. They themselves, the friends that is, would undergo the interview, and then, in turn, if they consented, they would uh, recruit more friends who would then come in as well. So you're looking at generations of friends of friends of friends that come in um and of course, when I'm saying friends, You can actually be a little more directive and say, can you bring your support friends or the friends that try to help you get off drugs or the friends that try to help you inject safely? You can ask them to bring in other drug using buddies. You can actually direct the question. And the premise of this uh, sampling is actually very old and it rests upon the work of Stanley Milgram from 1960s who did work showing that although humans have very wide and broad networks and other people may not be familiar with your own network, they actually have a pretty good idea of how to find other people and find their way around. So by asking questions like, who else do you know who may be at risk? Or can you give this to a friend who who you think is most likely to know this other person or has connections on the eastern seaboard? People actually don't know those people, but they can usually find a person in their network who is actually pretty knowledgeable. And there we have, of course, the famous saying, the six degrees of separation.
5: So how does this uh, interesting method provide us with additional insight into the health status of marginalized populations?
6: The people who are most sort of expert at their own networks are the actual community involved. And a lot of this method depends on very good relationships between the community and the researchers. So as you may expect, with these populations and in our other work, we've been moving more and more towards community-based research. And to me, this is the ultimate involvement in the community is where the community actually gets to be the experts on their own health care and their own health needs and their own risks. And they're able to actually recruit each other And so that is the the beginning part of all of this. The people that you initially recruit are leaders. And then what happens is those people recruit their friends. And so what happens over after several generations of recruitment is we feel we're getting more and more into the population, most at risk. So in other words, those people who are most difficult to find, least likely to come in for traditional care, least likely to engage with, you know, the institutions of our society like social services and hospitals. These are the people we feel that we're able to reach the best with this method.
5: That sounds really valuable to be able to allow these marginalized groups to help each other to achieve better health outcomes.
6: Yeah, and I think one of the fundamental reasons it works so well is because there's very much of a respect relationship happening here. We don't pretend to know everything and we are actually letting the process guide itself, let the community guide The recruitment process itself. And needless to say, the large amount of lead-up work in which we can find people who are most likely to know other people and most likely to be trusted by other people, this is a a really important part of this research. Of course, once you've collected the data and you've gone through these chains of recruitment and these chains of people at risk, you know, it's possible to use these chains also to spread prevention messages and other interventions. So I think that by strengthening the community and strengthening the relationships between yourself and the community as a researcher, it's whatever comes out, whether it's knowledge or prevention, it's all good.
5: Thanks for talking with us today, Anne.
6: You're so welcome, Kirsten.
0: The editorial in the October 20th issue addresses a very hot topic in the Canadian federal election, muzzling of federal scientists. Erin Russell, assistant editor at CMAJ, points out examples where federal scientists have been unable to share their opinions or the results of their research. She concludes that scientific integrity should be an election issue and that Canadian federal scientists need to be free to share their work without political interference. And she wonders where the party leaders stand on this issue. The news team provides in-depth looks at the costs and demand for legal support for Canadian physicians. These costs and demands are increasing, so major changes are required to ensure that legal protection for physicians in Canada remains affordable and accessible. Laura Eggertson reports on an inquest in Iqaluit on the suicide of an 11-year-old boy, Rex Utak, and the need for a well-defined strategy to address suicide in the North. Researchers Engaging in Fraud Lookout, the Panel on Responsible Conduct of Research is looking into releasing names of researchers receiving federal funding if they breach ethics regulations. And rounding out this issue is a profile of the psychiatrist J.L. Moreno, pioneer of psychodrama, group psychotherapy, and sociometry, the forerunner of modern social network analysis. The article is By His Son take a look. It's a good read. So that's it for this podcast. There's more online at cmaj.ca and in the print issue. I'm Dr. Diane Kelsall, Deputy Editor. Thanks for listening.